are you having? What am I having? I am having some Blue Moon Belgian White, Belgian style wheat ale. Is this free beer via your, your bar hookup? <laughs> yes, it is lightly expired Blue Moon. <laughs> but uh, hey, the price is right. Compost Beneficiary is brought to you by lightly expired beer. Yes, lightly expired free beer. That's the best kind of lightly yeah. expired beer. I don't drink just I don't <laughs> drink just any expired swill. It's got to be free. Welcome to the Compost Bin of History, the podcast where we stick our pitchforks into old ideas and inhale deeply the putrid smells of our decaying society. Lo, the stench of death approaches. My co-host, Jared, I'm starting to think those pitchforks are going to come in handy for all kinds of things. I think they definitely will. I'm James. I have a degree in this bullshit that we're talking about today. And I've been very sad for that reason, because it pains me to think about forest management versus climate change. But unfortunately, I think that given that that's what the zeitgeist is, we have to like parse apart this idea. We had this debate between Trump and Biden last week, and when the subject of climate change came up and the forest fires that are still raging across the American West and causing poor air quality for millions of people, President Trump tried to obfuscate and bring up something that is kind of a ways perhaps off topic. I don't know. What would you say about it, Jared? Well, renowned thinker Donald Trump definitely has a handle on what's going on with forest management. So I think yeah. we should pay attention when he speaks, especially on that matter. Well, let's play the clip from the debate and uh, just to rehash some of the main talking points. All right. I told myself I would try not to remember anything about this, but let's listen. So that was some stirring argumentation there. <laughs> Sounds like they just uh, really need to get in the same room and talk it out a little more, you know? <laughs> I think they should sit very close together right now in the same room and talk it out a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Uh... <laughs> this is kind of behind the times too, Jared, right? Like this debate, who even remembers this debate now? Well, I sure don't. I was pretty sure I was having a waking fever dream while it was going on. Uh, I I remember bits and pieces. I I mean I do as well. I was definitely playing a drinking game in addition to just recreationally drinking while doing it. Um, but it was pretty awful. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, as that as that clip demonstrated. <laughs> All I remember is Trump talking about forest cities and me really wishing that that was a thing. 
I think he must. I mean, I think he must have watched like. <laughs> uh, it was the third Star Wars, yeah, totally. right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he must have been thinking about Endor or something. Which, yeah, is the forest moon of Endor. <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty cool. But that's what happens when you have dementia, though, is your brain just like blips into old Star Wars movies in the middle of a presidential debate, and you start talking about Ewoks. I mean, following in the footsteps of another previous glorious god emperor, Mister Reagan. Uh, yeah, just got to bring it back yeah. to Star Wars mm-hmm yeah i think that's that's how you sell it to people <laughs> <laughs> the ewoks knew how to do forest management dude i don't know uh, we just don't <laughs> if trump told me that they were going to build a forest city and mexico would pay for it i'd sign up dude i'd be one right. of the first ones yeah. there well i think we need to make it like absolutely clear that if you believe donald trump on this issue that forest management is the thing that is responsible for the wildfires in the american west compost bin of history has a series of university lecture courses that we would like to sell you titled growing your compost business through (laughs) 21 practices you can only unlock with our in-depth know-how and systematic learning (laughs) process it's our version of the business secrets of the pharaohs we don't have a physical location or an administration or a library, but you can send us $5,000 and you will receive a series of lectures on compost ideology and how to apply it in your business practice. We will accept cash only and you will not be given a receipt. (laughs) Yeah, so Trump is just like always a shuckster. Someone described forest ecology to him once to try and like, you know, paint a little bit more of a nuanced picture of, you know, wildfire ecology and he just like seized on that one thing that forest management has something to do with wildfires and used it as an obfuscation right i mean he described it in the most trump way possible too folks we gotta we gotta rake the forest folks (laughs) i know and he said you can't even drop a cigarette out there I don't know. Are people still like smoking cigarettes? I thought everyone was vaping now. Oh no! I mean, no. who's <laughs> come back to the Midwest? Dude, there's cigarette smoking going on everywhere. Okay, and this shit's being like popped off by people who are having gender reveal parties. Anyway, this isn't. <laughs> I mean, like again, oh, fuck. It just makes my my brain literally has hurt for the last week. Not even just gender reveal parties. Aren't aren't they like setting off thermite with like shooting thermite with a gun to like yeah. <laughs> tell everyone what type of just like is there anything that we do in like the American culture that isn't just like a exercise in personal narcissism? Like who the fuck cares what gender your baby is? Besides like maybe I know. maybe you and like your mom. <laughs> That's probably it. So I wanted to talk about straw man arguments. Because this is exactly what a straw man argument is. When you think about a straw man, this is a different target to attack. If you're in argument with someone, rhetorically, you are attacking them. Or you're attacking some opponent. If you're talking about climate change, you'd be attacking, say, fossil fuel companies. But someone could erect a false target, a straw man, and say... Oh, but forests have been poorly managed and lead you down that other route to attack, right? And you could say, well, yes, forests have been poorly managed, but X and Y and Z. 
when you really should just say no fuck you climate change I, fuck you climate change fuck you climate change yeah totally but also like when trump is saying that they've been poorly managed he's not saying like hey maybe we should manage them better he's basically like <laughs> eventually down the road gonna use that as like a reason why well if you just like cut down all the forests and sell them off to yeah. like paper companies then you know there's gonna be nothing to burn folks right yeah, there's no actual additional nuance. There's no like plan forward to say forest management. And so we're going to talk about any kind of progressive policy or way to fix the problem. No, it's just it's literally just a fake target for people to argue about on the Internet and make podcasts about, which we're going to do now. Well, I guess at least it benefits us. That's all I should care about as a good American subject. Well, and I do enjoy talking about forest management is the thing. As I said, I actually, you know, worked on forest management research when I was working on my master's degree. These two people talking to you right now aren't totally inept when it comes to the environment. (laughs) Just mostly. Just mostly inept. But this is actually one thing that the two of us know quite a bit about, having spent a lot of time in forests. And even having raked a forest or two ourselves i was out in the forest earlier today as was i actually we were in two totally different biomes i was in a kind of zarek um foothills evergreen forest mixed deciduous there's some aspen there what about you uh mixed hardwoods predominant species were red and burr oak and uh, some basswood and a couple of hackberries <clears throat> love a good hackberry and the beautiful tree oh yeah and the lus hills um if anybody's trying to learn their trees hackberry is a good one to start with it's a pretty easy id there's really three things to unpack here as we basically are rehashing an old argument from forest management and it's so old to the point that the two research papers we're going to reference today are both from 1996 yeah i mean as a scientific community, everything that's wrong with the world today, we've known about, and people have, it's not, there's no new research yeah. on it, because there's no new research to do. It's like, yeah. we did the work already, and then we didn't follow any of it, and all the problems that were predicted 20 years ago are just coming to fruition now. Yeah, it's still important to talk about, though. Oh, Definitely. Uh, the average person Uh, is not like having debates about forest management i just mean uh right you know like but honestly though i think we talked about like david attenborough last week and how there can be like kind of a a false promise in nature documentaries now in this last week people who like watched the debate and like listened to jordan peterson and shit particular chaos dragon i know has also watched enough David Attenborough documentaries to now say that she understands the research on forest management and climate change ecology, and that's why Donald Trump is right. (laughs) All right, well, maybe I'll have to change my perspective on the matter then. It's good to, like, learn about these things, but we also need to kind of, like, add layers of nuance and depth, then provide, like, you know, a path forward, like what these papers talk about. And I guess maybe we're amplifying that in some way, if we have any purpose. Yeah, I mean, this is like, if you ever take like a conservation course or anything like that at the college level, one of the first things you're going to talk about is fire suppression practices and why it's probably not great 
but then you <laughs> take a look around you and it's still kind of the law of the land and what forest managers are doing for right. whatever reason. Do you think I should give just a like really brief working um, explanation of climate change? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we should probably assume that people don't know a ton about anything that we're going to talk about. Okay. You know? Yeah, let's start with a brief material history of climate change. Then we'll jump into these these two papers. Okay. See that piece of wood over there? That tree or wall, perhaps? <laughs> Try walking through it. Didn't work, did it? <laughs> well, that's because matter has physical properties. All right, maybe you don't what? have to start that rudimentary. <laughs> 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 No, no, no. Follow follow with me here, okay? All right, all right. That wood is made out of carbon. Carbon is a building block in the sense that it has lots of those physical properties, right? You and I are made out of carbon. Trees are made out of carbon. And what happens when you, like, burn a tree? Where does all that carbon go? It goes into the air, right? When the carbon is in the air... It still has physical properties. It can still interact with things like sunlight in particular ways. Like if you stand out in the sun, your skin feels warm, right? If you wear a black sweater, it warms you up. If you have more carbon in the air, all that carbon is going to trap that warmth. And if you took that piece of wood that's made out of carbon and buried it under the ground for several million years, you would end up with plenty of coal, or perhaps some natural gas or oil. All of that is also made out of carbon. And when we say run our society off of just that for 200 years, well, you put a lot of carbon in the air, and all of that carbon that has physical properties is trapping a lot of warmth from the sun. And that basically makes the air sad. And when the air is sad, it makes the weather sad. It makes forest fires, makes hurricanes makes derechos in Iowa and displaces people around the world and causes immense amounts of human suffering. Yeah. And that's the history of climate change. It's just like everybody's grandpa used to say, happy air, happy weather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did everyone's grandpa say that? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> They're going to say it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell my grandkids that I'm never having this is the way I teach this in my environmental science class is I basically say, no, it's not very complicated. It's just like stuff does stuff, stuff in air, air, bad, weather, bad. <laughs> there is such, maybe thing... I'm painting it in too broad of strokes. Uh, no, I mean, I don't think so. You know, there is a cause and effect for why this is happening. We've known about it for a very long time and we don't change it because we're stupid and individuals make poor choices. I don't know. That's what I've been told. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think a lot of like what we're told about climate change still kind of like disempowers people though. The individual, I think that when we say, look at ballot measures about public transport versus expanding interstate systems, like we should be connecting that in our heads to climate change, but we're not trained to like think in that way. We're not even, like, expected to think, period. Like, right. People don't turn on the TV to think. People turn on the TV to be told what point yeah. of view to have. It just matters what channel you land on 
as to which point of view you're going to start espousing. You're right. It trains you not to um, think uh, syncretically, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you got to take it? No, go ahead. I already ignored it. Actually, yeah. Edit this out. Hold on one second. Sure. I'm fucking up work-wise. Hey, uh, eight in the morning tomorrow. All right. All right. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, guy, what are we doing tomorrow, you know? Physical labor type stuff. Is he going to kill me? Yes. Now, nah, don't so- don't tell your family. They're, they're witnesses. Don't tell anybody. I don't want to be scared. I don't want to see it coming. That'd be horrible. Don't kill my family, though. For real, it's just a joke. Yeah, well, don't be late for work tomorrow, and I won't. How about that? Oh, shit. Bye. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> All right. I might leave that up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, cat's out of the bag. I am a PMC fucking scumbag. Everyone heard Jared cracking the whip. Right <laughs> I'm a very intimidating boss. <laughs> All right, so we've kind of covered climate change. How about the history of forest management in the American West? And to kind of address that, I think it's useful to just kind of start out by looking at different perspectives on forest management because it has changed a lot as everyone knows teddy roosevelt invented forest management in 1927 right now what we're going (laughs) yeah we're going to start there we're going to start actually in the 1920s oh okay well i was just shooting my mouth off (laughs) no that's that's good because ultimately we're going to like end up at the original forest management plan which was that of like indigenous people in western north america right Um, that's where we're going to end up at, but we'll start off like in the 1920s, because I think this actually frames the debate between Trump and Biden pretty well, because really it's kind of between this like old school extractive commercial viewpoint on the part of Trump. And then this kind of like newer, like uh, detached scientific viewpoint. And I mean, scientific in the sense of like, quote unquote, scientific viewpoint, with Biden, you know, we hear you, we feel you, we see you, we're cognizant of it, that kind of thing. It's just PR. Yeah, the, the PR science viewpoint. All right, so let's hear an example of what I would call like the Trump viewpoint on forest management. Uh, this is from 1962, and this was actually quoting a person named From. So 1962. David Frum's grandpa. <laughs> Spelled slightly differently. Ah, okay. Actually, I think this this guy, I think his name is like Frome. Frome? I think he's considered a foundational researcher in forest management. Oh, okay. Because I'm pretty sure I cited him a couple times in my thesis. Oh, well, all right. I'm going to call him Smooth Frome then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Only one person is going to get that, but yeah. <laughs> So this is Smooth Fro in 1962, <laughs> giving us kind of the Donald Trump viewpoint on forest management. Then there are insects, there are moths, weevils, caterpillars, worms, beetles, sawflies, termites, and borers. They march, they dig, they fly, they bore and crawl and reproduce within trees. They nourish themselves and their young. Some, like the bark beetles, are the mortal foe of conifers. Insects are the worst of all enemies of trees. They cause twice as much damage as disease and seven times more damage than fire. Oh, Jesus. 
I'm just having flashbacks of like the videos that it's from like the 40s where they're talking about mosquitoes and the way to get rid of mosquitoes is just to put a one inch thick layer of oil on every body of water you come across yeah yeah and that solves everything <laughs> yeah kids. totally just get rid of the insects it'll be fine those little bastards all they do is break stuff and cause disease exactly and and so the 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 viewpoint here is that the tree is a product you want the tree the tree's happy and everything else that might occur to the tree everything else that you know occurs within um, a natural system which is in insect infestation um disease these types of things um that's all bad natural systems and processes that occur outside of human control are bad and should be avoided at all costs yeah well how could trees have ever survived without us protecting them from insects (laughs) and fires right yeah (laughs) i mean why how are there any trees left to burn today it's really amazing so that's that extractive mindset that really is just capturing a very narrow viewpoint on on the environment however i think that it's important here because we are looking at in this case the environment as object right that it is something to be controlled or contained or whatever and when i think we look at the biden viewpoint we're going to flip over to looking at the environment as subject and when we get to the compost bin of history viewpoint we're going to see the dialectical synthesis of the two a little bit of that marxist theory for you jerry i know I know what you want. Fancy. I'm getting turned on already. Here's the Biden viewpoint on forest management. Natural disturbances are quite common in all regions of North America, Jack, and the world when viewed from a long-term perspective. Each area has characteristic frequencies and types of disturbances based on climate, soils, vegetation, animals, and other factors. Look, fires windstorms and other disturbances have specific behaviors and leave certain conditions for growth and that's from oliver and larson writing in 1990 kind of after the paradigm shift has occurred uh in science as a whole just around the time uh when joe biden failed the first time he tried to run for president <laughs> that's right yeah didn't, didn't he plagiarize like an mlk speech or something like that <laughs> I, uh, I don't know who it was from but he definitely had a big plagiarism ding against him yeah but i think that what you can kind of see there is that now the environment is subject it's something that we study forests are something that we study we look at how just dis- forests are disturbed through things like fire windstorms uh landslides and we kind of say, okay, this fucks some shit up, but it also leaves some conditions for growth. And I think that really embodies that kind of abstract viewpoint, again, of um, environment as subject. Really, I think Joe Biden kind of looks at America as subject. Like it is this thing to be kind of like studied and maybe lightly manipulated, but you don't really want to like fuck with anything, you know? I don't know. What, what do you think on that, Jared? Just observe and don't experiment. Yeah. We pray for the people being affected by the hurricanes in the Gulf. We pray for the people being affected by the firestorms. But we can't do anything, or we shouldn't do anything to change any of it. Well, we definitely shouldn't look at the ultimate causes of those events. We should instead just talk about how to help people, maybe in some marginal way, after they happen. Tax credits for rebuilding your house. 
tax credits for rebuilding your house and switching the federal fleet to electric vehicles because that's going to have a direct impact on forest fires in California, right? <laughs> so now let's look at what I've titled the compost bin of history viewpoint. And this is actually written before both of these other ones, the 1990 and the 1962. But it was by a total crackpot named Aldo Leopold, who basically went nowhere. No one gives a fuck about him. Just some weirdo that really liked Sandhill Cranes. Yeah, yeah, just a, a really strange person. But we here at Compost Men of History, we love Aldo Leopold. Yeah, dude was an OG. Hell yeah. OG naturalist. Here's Aldo Leopold on forest management. Previous to settlement of the country, fires started by lightning and Indians kept the brush thin, kept the juniper and other woodland species decimated, and gave the grass the upper hand with respect to possession of the soil. In spite of periodic fires, the grass prevented erosion, and the removal of the grass by settlers uh, relieved the brush species of root competition and of fire damage, and thereby caused them to spread and take the country. Aldo Leopold, 1924. So here we kind of see this synthetic viewpoint, right? If we're just trying to look at things in a snapshot of like right now, we're really going to lose out on a lot of the more subtle context that is essential to understanding the ecology, the system of interactions between living and non-living things in, a, in an area. So that's why he says that, you know, you have to consider that before settlement, different management practices inspired different species to uh, be more abundant. And that with uh, European colonization in the American West, a lot of the uh, brush that is being so readily burned in California right now, that would have been controlled and limited to a great extent under previous fire management regimes but that's again that's totally separate from climate change because aldo leopold writing in 1924 was not also saying and now we have huge terrible forest wildfires that are ripping through he says fire suppression is leading the stuff to take the country well it took the country and now the climate has warmed and it's drying out and now this stuff is burning and now it's burning other uh, woodlands nearby and at higher elevations as well that might not otherwise have been as susceptible yeah he specifically mentions keeping the junipers out of like the hardwood stands i was just out today in a place where they're cutting down just tons and tons of red cedar um, out of forests where they shouldn't really be and the the dryness of all those pine needles underneath those trees compared to like the leaf litter from you know oaks and mm -hmm. deciduous trees the difference in moisture level down on the soil is ridiculous i was kind of doing totally normal things and like digging in the dirt a little bit today under different types of trees because <laughs> uh, i was i was thinking about that quite a bit yeah well one of the things that would have kept as you say, those juniper species in check, even out there in um, Iowa and South Dakota, but definitely throughout the American West, is a regular disturbance regime. In the floodplains, that was flooding. Flooding will typically kill 
species like red cedar, but species like cottonwoods have a much better survivability. And in the mountains, it would have been fire started by Native Americans or just wild lightning. And one of the things that is pointed out in this paper is how disturbance agents basically are the driving force that reset a lot of ecosystems. When we look at what makes a you know healthy or maybe we should just say useful state, I think it's important to, yeah, find that dialectical synthesis because we do need to exist in the environment. We need to be able to sustain ourselves and um, live within our means on this planet. Well, I mean, that's like the root cause of most of our problems is that we you talk about living within the environment. We generally, at least uh, in the West or in America, whatever you want to call it, I mean, we pretty much see ourselves as something that's, you know, right. there is like town. Nature is over there. Yeah, nature's over there. It's like this thing that, you know, a lot of us like. And it's pretty cool and all that, but it's separate from us. And, right. you know, a lot of... But it's not, though. Well, of course not, but... Yeah. So, we have to not take that that subjective viewpoint, because then it's it's basically as bad as just saying, you know, extract away, because fuck it. Which is why I think this Aldo Leopold quote is so nice. And I think it really sums things up, especially with the next paper that we're going to look at. But so these disturbance events are really important for these ecosystems. And when we talk about what makes a useful ecosystem, what makes an area that we can hunt in and fish in, gather mushrooms in or um, put our livestock in, that really is the determining factor. So a disturbance event seldom acts alone it's usually in concert with other things so a good example is the wildfires because they are occurring right now in concert with climate change right climate change is the ultimate cause of these wildfires and other factors like forest management have some proximal role in causing them but the disturbance itself these massive wildfires that are resetting ecosystems across the american west and burning up thousands of acres millions of acres at this point there's all of these these interlocking machinations of capitalism that are going on above and beyond a simple discussion of forest management with regard to fire particularly quoting from uh, this paper views of wildland fire on the, this continent have evolved from native americans purposeful use of fire to european immigrants fear of disdain for and control of fire to the appreciation of fire in its varied ecological guises today and i don't know if we would say we appreciate fire but we can certainly understand its varied ecological guises that in a small application over a localized scale, it can be an extremely useful and helpful thing when it comes to managing an ecosystem for uh, diverse wildlife, a healthy floral community, endangered species, and for human use. But when you have, as you say, millions of acres that have had by now two centuries of brush and litter and wood accumulation because of this European fear. And then, you know, climate change comes in and dries it all out to an extent that it's so easy to ignite. That is a totally different ecological um, event than that small regional fire. Because now, you know, it's destroying 
not just human infrastructure, but it's burning at such a intensity that it's also um, destroying species. It's destroying biodiversity. It's destroying soil health, soil microbes. It's um, destroying rivers um, through increased erosion and runoff, which means that it's affecting fish populations and amphibian populations. The ecological effects of a fire of this size are more akin to like a mass disaster event. It's like ver- it's like um, a car accident versus being hit by a meteor. At least with the meteor, you get like a giant chunk of iron that you can harvest afterwards, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I sure. All I can think about is all of the morel mushrooms that are going to be popping up in the next couple of years and all of this burnt off land. But uh, that's, that's kind of yeah. like the, the meteor and that analogy. But yeah, obviously mm-hmm. uh, not good still. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because of just all of those cascading effects, you know, when you have a small wildfire over a small hillside that burns mostly grass and a few trees, it's being pretty helpful to that community, actually, and um, not like what's happening right now. So um, that's kind of the uh, the question is, is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, there's got to be some type of way of looking at that, too, that is a little bit opposite of how we view humans because this this event when it's small and you know not catastrophic like we have going on now obviously it's not good for the individuals that are burned up in the fire but it's good overall for the ecosystem it just you know it start it resets the succession clock basically you know obvious yeah, obviously and... it's not good news for like the handful of trees and whatever else gets killed right. in the blaze but right yeah and so I think it's it's worth like talking about, you know, why was fire used as a management tool and who was doing it, right? Yeah. So we referenced here that Native Americans' purposeful use of fire, which they were doing to basically create that kind of like ideal ecosystem for human activity. And uh, this next paper from, again, from 1996, I just thought this was a great find, Jared. Did you ever, did you use this in some of your research or anything? Um, you know, I don't think so. I've been aware, I guess, that this was going on for a long time. And I've read mm-hmm. things along this, this line, I guess. It's definitely not something that, I don't even think that this was taught in any of the classes I took when we were learning about like succession or forest management or anything like that. Well, I, I kind of learned about this through just spending lots of time outside as a hunter and as a fisherman and mushroom forager. That, you know, if you're trying to uh, gather your food in a natural habitat or whatever you want to call it, then you start to like find, you know, what habitat works. Like, where are you going to actually be able to find pheasants and, you know, squirrels and rabbits? Yeah. What type of area is going to hold fish? What's going to have the morel mushrooms? Definitely. And one thing that you realize like very soon in that type of setting is that the, the edge is a powerful thing the habitat edge is typically like what holds a lot of your quarry, whether it's um, a plant or an animal, you kind of typically will try to work the edge of habitats because then you have a few different options and a few different things you can look for at any one time. I think uh, we should ecologically speaking, define what you mean by edge. Right. So this is a whole ecological concept called the edge effect where you have a transition zone between, say, like a forest and a field. 
or a, um, a cliff in a meadow. Along that edge is where you have essentially a, a route, a funnel that is pushing things together and causing a dynamic mix of species and, uh, and environments, I would say. What, and what that means is that, you know, if you're a hunter, you're typically going to walk the edge of a field. And that's because the pheasants are going to hang out in that area on the edge because they could either go into the field where there's thicker cover and they would have shelter, or they could go to, you know, the cornfield outside or some other place for food or water. If you were looking for mushrooms, um, you'd probably often walk in, you know, areas where there are, you know, kind of in between wetter areas and drier areas because you want to find that transitional like moisture zone where mushrooms could be supported or it wouldn't be too dry, but it wouldn't be too wet. Definitely. It's not probably something that a lot of people understand inherently if they haven't been exposed to it before. Right. But I, I do think if you've been hunting or fishing and the same with fishing, you know, you're mm-hmm. going to look around like the inlet or the outlet of the lake, the edge of different habitat types along drop offs and that type of thing. Definitely. Because that's where your your game or your your stuff you're looking for. Yeah, typically you're going to find the most biodiversity on the edge of different habitats. Exactly. And if your whole system of production, if you're a, a an indigenous person in America, and the way that you get food, shelter, medicine, housing, everything, is from your immediate environment, then it's actually really beneficial to manage your immediate environment for edges. You want to have lots and lots of edges because then you have maximum uh, productivity in terms of your immediate resources. And that lets you live pretty sustainably within the environment for 10,000 years, as we're going to see in this next paper, which is looking at actually this area of California that's on fire right now and talking about, well, how did people manage that environment for so long so successfully? Because when we talked about like Lebensraum, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't actually have to go and, you know, commit genocide. You can live sustainably within a a natural system and you can like rectify, you know, the resource imbalances that occur within your society. And we know that's we know that's true because it happened. Yeah, it's just the Jews that are holding us back from doing that now. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> well, something stood in the way of you know Hitler from doing it because obviously he wasn't able to do what America did in the West, and that was of course the like Soviet Union. I mean, in South Flames, America, man. it certainly could have happened if insanely devastating pandemics weren't ravaging the population yeah and it's also important to note that the cultural development of south america was much more kind of along a i guess i would say like a more traditionally agricultural route and um, resulted in you know a lot more capital development and imperialism than what existed again for basically throughout um prehistory in the american west up until the Europeans got here and ruined everything. Yeah, I mean, South America was kind of analogous to Europe, and uh, North America was kind of like step nomads, like you would find in, yeah. in like Russia and everything. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, actually, I I think uh, when the Spaniards arrived, wasn't Tenochtitlan like the biggest city in the world at that point? 
population wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, population wise, it was in the cities in um, South America, like uh, in Peru, what is now Peru. The Inca cities were absolutely gigantic. I mean, crazy levels of civilizational development. And, and, you know, it's actually kind of neat that you pointed out that... Uh, and they weren't, like, swimming you know, in their own human filth like the Europeans were, which was, like, right. part of the reason that the virus loads and all that were so devastating to the indigenous people, because they were just... Yeah. <laughs> their immune systems weren't accustomed to all of those diseases because they just lived in better conditions. I know. I, I remember... <laughs> um, Learning about like the the conquest of Mexico, how Aztec people like bathed like three times a day. Yeah, they thought the Spanish were fucking disgusting because they wouldn't. <laughs> the Spaniards just wouldn't bathe at all. <laughs> but yeah, so um, the Paleo Indian people of Western North America really existed in pretty much this kind of pre proto agriculture. We would kind of call this again, trying to like fit it into our like narrow like European box like understanding we would kind of call this proto-agriculture because it does involve like long-term management of the environment for food production, but not necessarily involving like row crop agriculture. I mean, basically... even the type of agriculture that was being used in the plains. I mean, it's agriculture without being spazzes about having a surplus that you can store and then... Right. It's, it's <laughs> agriculture where you can still move around. Yeah. You know? You can, like, go somewhere nice for the winter and come back. You have, like, areas that you can forage and hunt in throughout the year, and you kind of, like, move between those areas, and... I mean, I, I don't want to, like, you know, over-sentimentalize this, because to me, as, like, a hunter, it sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're managing plant and animal species for food production it's agriculture yeah (laughs) yeah it is well let's let's just uh read from the the start of this paper this is native american land use practices and ecological impacts by anderson and Murato, writing in 1996 numerous proto-agricultural techniques based upon traditional knowledge of natural processes gained over millennia were applied to increase the quantity and improve select qualities of focal plant species. Fire was the most important management tool, employed to clear brush, maintain grasslands and meadows, improve browse for deer, enhance production of basketry and cordage materials, modify understory species compositions in forests, and reduce fuel accumulation that might otherwise sustain intense fires. Considering that the human population of the Sierra Nevada was approximately 90,000 to 100,000 in late prehistoric times between roughly the years 1300 and 1800, the environmental consequences of aboriginal land use management practices were substantial. I feel like it's important to point out that when we're talking about North America, yeah, prehistory is like 1500 and before not right, yeah. not like 3000 bc like it would be in the no longer fertile crescent well but it was existing since at least 3000 bc though oh right? definitely but i just uh you know there was no there was no such thing as a written history at that time so yeah. in that area of the and world. i mean the whole concept of history is very you know western and kind of imperialist in that sense right yeah i'm just saying 
I think when the average person anyway that goes through the American school system hears prehistory, they're going to think like biblical times. This was this was not even close to that long ago. Yeah. Importantly though, this way of living was existing since before biblical times through not that long ago. Definitely. Since people populated um North America after the last glacial maximum around 12,000 years ago, they've been living, you know, more or less sustainably in this fashion in this area of the Sierra Nevadas. And, you know, as as the other paper we just cited pointed out, we can kind of generalize to a pretty good extent for a lot of the mountain west of North America and Canada when we're talking about uh, this next paper and the way indigenous people used fires to kind of manage for this favorable habitat. So it's really important to then consider everything that happened after that, since all the white people got there, that is basically in an ecological vacuum. That because 10,000 years of management had existed where, I mean, entire species evolutionary trajectories were in effect shaped by this management. Well, it had led to the extreme abundance of all types of resources and wild animals and all the all the stuff that if you read anything about what the state of nature was at the time when white people first showed up all of those things were largely a result of these management practices they weren't just like you know right. <laughs> like the settlers were like oh god has bestowed this land with all of these great benefits it was like a result of those management practices and the horrible pandemic plagues that had gone through you know a few decades well, yeah, before. Yeah. management practices and extreme depopulation right exactly and so like when lewis and clark were like going through up the missouri river and they like were in southeast south dakota and seeing like thousands of elk just like hanging out on the prairie that was because of management for centuries literally millennia beforehand and then all the people who had been there you know, harvesting those deer had then been killed by smallpox. So there's just like, yeah, zillions of buffalo and shitloads of geese and everything because of how good of a job people have been doing for so long managing for that type of abundance. And then they they had all already mostly been killed by that point, by those plagues. 90% of the people living here roughly is that the estimate I think that I've seen. Yeah, like before even, you know, Lewis and Clark, like before 1800, I think there had already been like a 90% drop. So yeah, let's continue. There is currently an ecological vacuum or disequilibrium in the Sierra resulting from the departure of Native American influences. The recent decline in biotic diversity, species extirpation and endangerment, human encroachment into fire type plant communities, e.g. chaparral, and greatly increased risk of catastrophic fires are but symptoms of this disequilibrium. That greatly increased risk is a symptom of that disequilibrium. But I would still say the actual fires themselves are the result of climate change. It's the confluence of factors. Well, I mean, how long has California been in a drought now? Like extreme drought condition? In 1996, they were writing the greatly increased risk of catastrophic fires, right? Yeah. Now, if they were writing this paper, they would say <laughs> the catastrophic fires. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, by the t- they're not even catastrophic fires anymore because everything's burnt down. 
So yeah, they say this traditional knowledge which permitted the adaptive success of large human populations and the maintenance of Sierran environments for more than a hundred centuries must not be dismissed. Let's talk a little bit about that management philosophy of Native Americans in the Sierra Nevada. So not management philosophy the way that, you know, Jared cracks the whip and gets his, <laughs> his laborers in, but how these people manage their, their environment around them. The underlying management philosophy of Native Americans in the Sierra Nevada was to continuously introduce small disturbance regimes into various plant community types, which created openings or clearings. These openings invited the colonization of plant species that could not grow in surrounding dominant vegetation types. These clearings represented a series of earlier successional stages within a more homogenous landscape. Rather than reflecting an unchanging system, these landscapes were much more dynamic under the influence of human disturbance than in their quote-unquote natural state. So that's something that some managers do try to do in some public lands, using small fires and clearing. Oftentimes, though, what I see out here in the American West is instead that the forests are actually, instead of just being burned, are kind of being raked that um, yeah they're dragging out all of the deadfall and then piling it up in the clearing to burn yeah, and big you like know. big like funeral piles stacks right all over the place sometimes yeah and yeah typically when you see a prescribed burn it's going to be of like a grassland i don't think i've ever seen a prescribed burn of forest land going on maybe that's just mm -hmm. my own ignorance but no you're absolutely right in my thesis, I actually said the best thing that you can do out here would be to just burn everything down and just let it regrow. Because then it would be, you'd have way more aspen. I mean, if you want more aspen, just just burn everything. And um, I've been checking in. There hasn't been a prescribed fire out there yet. I mean, they do clear. They cut things down. They clear things out. Yeah. Again, brush clearing. But it's not the type. It was because it was fire that was clearing yeah. the brush that was encouraging nutrient cycling i mean in a lot of trees if you cut down the main stem that's just going to stimulate it to grow even more so right. you're working against your objective sometimes doing that mm -hmm. so again quoting from the paper burning was probably the most widely employed efficient and significant vegetation management tool used in the sierra nevada knowledge and use of the slow match and torch recorded for most tribes gave native peoples the technological capability to burn either small patches or extensive tracts of vegetation in a systematic fashion frequent burning promoted a herbaceous understory vegetation within woodlands and coniferous forests the continuous and sufficient fuel bed facilitated the burning of land of large aerial extent felling trees with fire to promote type conversions was a capability of most tribes and that was known as far back as 1937. Well, and Aldo Leopold said that in 1924. Yeah. So I, it's it's feasible to me that it was like more known back then than it was in the 50s. Right. You know. And and yet, what transpired was the development of that extractive mindset that said absolutely no fire, no, we can't have beetles, we can't have insects, fire, nothing, because we need the forest to either be pristine and vast or we need to have them ready to cut down right but the idea of having this big mosaic of messy stuff with fires here and there dynamic management practices 
Again, all of that is basically not conducive to a capitalist system because it essentially defies concepts of property and uh, wealth extraction and involves a type of long-term management that just isn't capable in the modern in the modern business environment. <laughs> you can't make a five-year plan. You can't make a century-long plan for your, your habitat. I was going to say, that type of burning, that's more like a 40-year plan, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, that's the thing is you're managing for 40 years from now for your kids and your kids' kids. But is there like a single person in any position of power who's like thinking that way right now? <laughs> Maybe for their kids. They're saying like, yeah, I'm getting getting mine like and fuck everybody else. Yeah, that's why they're going to have their but, like compound with auto turrets up in, on the walls or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and – um this mindset though is like the antithesis of that because it's essentially saying we're going to build an environment that could be used by us, could be used by other people, you know, but regardless, it's going to be useful and help, you know, sustain life. And, you know, they're not going to like cash a paycheck for it. Right. It's just because it's a good thing to do. It's just because they want to survive. <laughs> Oh man, I don't even have <laughs> green jobs. I, I, don't even, I don't even have anything witty to say about that. Just <laughs> green jobs. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll just wear green jumpsuits to our jobs. Yeah. All right. So continuing with this paper, there's a growing awareness that the decline of biodiversity in the United States may be tied directly to past fire suppression policies and land managing agencies but prescribed burning programs on public lands and this is the important part adjacent to urban areas are hampered by and when they say urban areas they really should say not even urban areas but any residential area which if you drive through the forested west of the americas is all over the fucking place right sure, even there are wealthy subdivisions like nestled within a tract of national forest land just up the road from me here in colorado even in the forested areas in South Dakota, they're pretty much all butted up against some type of residential. Right. And it's because all of these like, you know, wealthy people who have made their buck extracting capital from the pores in the city want to get out of the city to, you know, set up their compound with their auto turret for their kids. So they go to the forest and the mountains and shit. And they, you know, use their connections to, like, buy out a little parcel of what was once National Forest land in some, like, weird little rectangle of, you know, area, like, amidst um, a thousand acres of evergreen forest. And they build a house there. They build a big, dumb house there. And then if anyone says we might have to do a little, like, controlled burn, you have all these, you know, fucking doctors and jet ski dealers and people who are saying, you're going to do a burn near my house? You're going to start a fire near my house? <laughs> Wait till my lawyer gets a load of this. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. I I would like to live, quote unquote, in the forest. I wouldn't have like a huge mansion or anything like that. But Well, if you're going to do it, you got to live underground. That's the trick. That's fine with me. Yeah. You got <laughs> to hollow out. You got to go badger style. That's cool. I live <laughs> underground. I'll have... Uh, all that energy efficiency and all that. I mean, if you live underground, a little forest fire, it's no problem for you. Yeah, make my heating bill go down even less. There you go. 
you know, I'll die of radon in 15 years and everybody will be better off. <laughs> Some downsides, I suppose. <laughs> so continuing from the paper, prescribe burning programs on public lands adjacent to urban areas, and I'll add residential areas, are hampered by increasing fire risk, threatening human safety and valuable property. Additionally, when prescribed burning programs are implemented, they are usually done with little or no understanding of the former role of Native Americans in setting fires and creating other kinds of human disturbances. Well, you know, a big barrier to us doing that is I don't believe the Native Americans had a real uh, strict private property system back then. Exactly, yeah. Even even I feel like we have to like nestle climate change itself a little bit within the proximal causation of capitalism, just sheer unrestrained capitalism. It's kind of the thing that's responsible for all of this when you think about it. Everything from like colonialism and imperialism to um, the buildup of all of this terrible fuel load, private property, people building their houses in dumb places. Yeah, I mean, it's literally the reason that you and I live where we do. It's the reason that we are talking about climate change at all you know it's ironically i think we just hit our three pillars of marxism there we did historical materialism we did um dialectics and we just did political economy we tied it all back to capitalism oh shit i knew we needed a soundboard we should have a sound for this I know we need like a like a um, an exciting noise for when we hit all three pillars of Marxism. All right, well, just imagine that there is a exciting noise right now. <laughs> you said dialectics. <laughs> oh, I just need a talking couch and we'll be all good. So gaps or grassy openings were created, maintained, or enlarged within diverse plant communities, resulting in many patches of plants in varying successional states. Human disturbance at gathering sites was a regular element of the system. And I think we should talk a little bit about patch dynamics as well, um, since we're, we've talked a little bit about like ed, the edge effect. You know, The edge effect kind of works in, in Congress with patch dynamics which is the idea that you have not a homogeneous mass of habitat no you don't just have a thousand acres of spruce forest you have patches of habitat here and there the animals move between this just kind of highlights the need for these disturbance dynamics that within an ecological system some fire windstorms landslides these are useful things to have and are actually pretty helpful in the the narrow sense of that that area right but again the overall global climate is affecting all of these individual places so to try and separate these patch dynamics from the overall dynamics of our warming climate is a fool's errand i guess just to kind of sum up here if you think that still that forest management alone is what's causing these wildfires compost bin university has a wonderful lecture series that is only seven thousand dollars an hour five easy payments of seven thousand dollars an hour <laughs> yes <laughs> i don't know anything else you want to hit on jared um 
Oh, I feel like we missed an opportunity to make some jokes with the whole edge effect thing, but uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just I think um I guess if we do this long enough, a recurring theme is probably going to be suppression of disturbance is a major issue and a lot of times just ends up costing us if you want to look at all of these problems in the lens of man this is going to cost us so much money um reducing disturbance over a long period of time ends up actually limiting a ton of really useful ecosystem services and usually ends up costing us much more in the long run for things that could basically just be happening for free if we would just allow it to happen. Right. And to get there, we kind of have to do away with some of these outdated notions of like property rights and wealth accumulation and stuff like that. And think generationally about what kind of world our grandkids are going to live in. We just need to force everyone into the cities and, uh, (laughs) that's where your like permanent residence is, but you know, allow people to, make little shacks out in the woods that once they burn down, it's not going to be a big problem. You can just put a different shack up. Should we talk a little bit about Trump COVID stuff? (laughs) I mean, it's funny that he got COVID. If he dies, I mean, how could you feel bad at all? (laughs) Um, For sure. You know, whatever. He'll probably be turned into some kind of crazy martyr. He'll be like the Kurt Cobain of American fascism or something, but yeah i don't know i don't know that there's anything particularly interesting about any of it it's just one more thing to just pull everybody's focus even further into the spectacle i guess and uh i don't know man everybody was talking about ruth bader ginsburg it seems like fucking (laughs) six hours ago and then everybody was talking about this debate that was such a shit show and we're supposed to think that like joe biden did some competent job during it which we must have been watching different things if you thought that and then it just like leapfrogged right into well now donald trump has covid so i don't know i know (laughs) it's gonna be at least another month of it like this now and probably for the foreseeable future i mean shit things have been like this for at least four years now i feel like yeah I was also going to tell you, actually, I kind of wanted to start the show out like this, but I forgot to mention Okay. It. I was talking to another mutual friend of ours who is now a big fan of the show. Okay. Goes by the handle Tickman. <laughs> All right. I think I might have, I think I might have some idea of who that is. So Tickman contacted me the other day while he was filling out his Florida ballot for the November election. Okay. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised to hear that Tickman is has voted now for Howie Hawkins, the green socialist candidate for president of the United States. Oh my, he didn't think that was throwing his vote away or something? Well, it's just that Tickman has definitely said to me more than a hundred times, better dead than red. <laughs> and now Tickman's voting for green socialist well, yeah uh, green not also red. apparently united states marine corps um howie Hos- howie hawkins for the dip for the president well you know what they say if you go into the armed forces you'll either get radicalized pretty quickly or you just turn into an absolute psychopath so but yeah so um i don't know i better better dead than red tick man 
has has apparently decided that maybe red's the way to go all right well shout out to tick man for having a change of heart yeah um i don't know i don't really feel i don't really feel like he's throwing his vote away i kind of feel like for for voting for president it doesn't really matter i mean i think we all just saw at the last at that last debate that we're all throwing our votes away yeah yeah um i mean it is kind of a, a social conscious vote i guess like um vote green keep your hands clean hey it's even catchy should we wrap it up jared i feel like we've cut it off here and uh mm-hmm. next week we'll talk about the tacoma narrows bridge disaster yep and we'll leave it off with our slogan quando omni flunkus morti <laughs> eat possums 